Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's General Secretary and the host of this show. After years of working at the association, one thing I've learned is that nurses and midwives have a vast array of passions that they bring to our professions. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Deb Lang to our show. Deb's a retired nurse and midwife with an incredibly varied career. After training and working in hospitals in Sydney in the 1970s, Deb then spent time in Goulburn and the Central Coast, retiring recently from her role as a rehab CNC at Gosford Private Hospital. She's been a member of the association uh, as a counsellor for many years and still remains involved in our campaigns through our retired member activist group. Her passions include veterans health and voluntary assisted dying, which we'll be discussing today. Thanks for joining us today, Deb. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Can you start off by telling us a bit about what kind of got you into nursing and midwifery and what your career has been like? Well, I had always wanted to be a nurse from the time I was a young girl. And uh, when I was 16 doing uh, at school, I went for an interview for nursing at North Shore Hospital. They accepted me depending on my finishing school when I was uh, 18. And uh, it went from there. I never wanted to be anything other than a nurse. So um, after school, I commenced in two days before my 18th birthday at North Shore and had wonderful three years there, most amazing place and the most wonderful hospital to get experience in. I was so enamored I stayed in my midwifery straight up and I left there in, uh, I think it was July 75. Uh, yeah, July 75. I was in Goulburn from 75, 76, and then came back to Crown Street when it was still an established hospital. Had a wonderful time there, met some very, very interesting people. A lot of cultural diversity there. Um, very, very good experience. Um, and then we relocated up to the Central Coast and that was it. I had a child in 83, no, sorry, in 1980, and a couple of years off and then started at the private hospital because it enabled me to work the hours that were suitable around, um, you know, what women do. Yeah. So I started on night duty on the weekends and uh, went from there. So that's a lot of years in nursing and midwifery, and I'm assuming you would have seen a lot of change and, you know, um, uh, lots of new sort of approaches happen over those years. Um, tell me a bit about that. What was it like when you started compared to what it was like when you finished? Um, North Shore in 1971 was glass syringes. No, very little minimal CSSD, everything we, nothing prepackaged or disposable. We had um, uh, just a lot of no technology. We relied on a lot of our own skills, not that we don't now. Um, I had uh, my second year of nursing was in the thoracic unit, lone beat night duty in a cardiac thoracic ward. That was not great. Unimaginable <laughs> these days, right? I had first four nights I was on night duty, we had a cardiac arrest. And of course, you arrange for someone to come. You get the wellest patient to win the emergency because you can't leave the patient. So, the first three nights, unfortunately, or well, the first two nights, 
my patient didn't survive. The third night when it happened, I was determined I wasn't going to lose that patient. <laughs> and thank God we didn't. But, um, yeah, you learn a lot when you rely on your own skills and instincts. And I think maybe people can relate to the fact very quickly when you're in a hospital and you have most a lot of support when you're on your own for a short period of time, very quickly you appreciate what you know and what you think you know are two different things. Mm. Because you can learn, you can have people standing by you while you're doing things fully resource ready to go, working in intensive care ward and things, and then all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're on your own, even be it for a few minutes or a bit longer, in the country hospitals a lot longer. Um, and Goulburn was a testament for that. Mm. We definitely hear that sort of thing from our members in, you know, small rural hospitals, MPSs, that sort of thing. In Goulburn, as a midwife, you were it because we had GPs then. We didn't have, um, uh, you know, big resources. We didn't, I, apart from doctors in emergency, which were minimal at Goulburn based in those days, but yeah, um, yes, we had... I was five months out of my maternity training in Goulburn and on one shift on one night, on night duty, I had a young first-time mum come in uh, for a baby, no antenatal care. Oh. I had a mother having her second child came in and I had a woman <laughs> who was having sixteenth. Wow. All what, a, what a variety. <laughs> all her previous children were alive and well. And I can tell you, five months out of my maternity training, that has to be my most memorable shift. Mm. All survived, all babies survived, everybody was fine, all delivered before I left. And I can tell you what, I think that's one of my proudest moments as a midwife. I can imagine, a bit of a feather in your cap on that one. That would it have is. been a, a, you know, a, an interesting um, kind of end of your shift, walking out going, wow, what a night. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, I remember, because all the paperwork was done. But, you know, I think when you reflect back on things that have happened, you just go, wow. And it, even some of the instances at um, the, uh, training at North Shore uh, and at Crown Street, where you um, learn lots of different things as well. Um, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, the people that you come across and the way you learn, or it's I don't know, I feel really sad for the training experience at their practical level that the nurses get now. Because I really feel that how much we absorb and learn at the bedside when we're actually treating patients, especially our, our days, of course, we had um, junior nurses, senior nurses and um, the junior sisters. Well, we started in the pan room day where you know did all the things and then did medications and dressings and things and worked our way up with experienced people alongside us. Mm. I just think the way I don't have a problem with the way our system is at the moment with us being as professional as we are. But I really feel from a practical point of view, registered nurses doing their training would be a lot uh, more supported and learn more. If they had more practical time. 
Yeah, the last few years in the pandemic, I think, has really highlighted some of the challenges that we've had in our profession in regards to training. Um, more so, you know, because we've had even less face-to-face time because of the pandemic and, yeah. you know, lockdowns, etc. But universities also having less face-to-face time. It's really reduced the amount of clinical lab time that people have had as well for training. So, you know, I really feel for the new grads that are coming in, um, particularly into the new year, they'll be the first graduates um, that we have that have done the entirety of their career online in some instances. So, you know, I think it's a incredibly challenging environment for them to come into with a workforce that's, you know, facing the challenges that it's facing. And so, you know, we need to find ways to really support um, those new nurses and midwives that are coming in, I think, because we need them. We love them. We've got a double whammy through with COVID because a lot of my generation, like I'm 69, I'll be 70 next year. And, um, you know, a lot of our generation have retired. And the experience at that level that is there doing the mentoring is what is the shift. And not only our ages from in the 50s, 60s up, but also the younger ones, you know, the 30s, the 40s, these girls are looking at, and I, I am um, quite unsettled by the fact that these people look at having to have career changes mm. because of the current climate. But I do have to say that little bit of joy we got this morning a certain person inquiring. <laughs> no, um, I just feel there has to be a change in the system and the valuing of what nurses and midwives actually do in the hospital system. Yeah. Because we're not only the glue, the petrol in the engine, and I'm not saying we're not well supported by everybody else, they do their bit, but if you take that nursing component out in the numbers that we have, and it's been proven with COVID, the, the nursing workforce of some very dedicated professional people, they physically got to make the choice of their own well-being, mm. and that's why they're walking away for no other reason. Yeah, I agree. Because not caring for the carers. Yeah. yeah, it's a challenging space, that's for sure. Uh, now, look, let's take a bit of a gear change. Tell me a bit about the work you've done with veterans' health. I know that's an area of passion for you and it's probably not something that a lot of people know about. So talk to me about what that entails and what you did. Um, I was born into veteran family. So my both my parents were World War II veterans and also previous generations of people from World War I were veterans. Um, my husband had a very brief military background but also um, my son and another member of the family uh, were in the military for 20 years and plus. So I always kept veterans very close to my heart. So grew up being indoctrinated into the veteran environment, the public celebration of the dedication and the um, effort that they've put into protecting the country in years past and also present. But things have changed with the veterans and it's not very much inclusive of, as you can appreciate, my nursing career. When I went into Gosford Private, there were a lot of veterans in my patient base. I worked with surgical orthopaedics and a rehabilitation ward and 
you know, not just the veterans, but also their spouses, because a lot of them were widows, World War One or World War Two veterans. Um, and then, of course, embracing over the last twenty years or more, the younger generation of contemporary veterans, and um, that that's been huge too, because a lot of difference in how the veterans were treated post Vietnam, and also their uh, reluctance to seek help for PTSD and a lot of issues. Um, and very similarly with contemporary veterans. Um, I wish we could embrace them a lot more. They are involved on a constant basis, not just with military um, uh, theatres of war, but they are very involved in domestic um instances with cyclone floods and like all the things we've seen them in, involved in. Mm. Um, my son, particularly in his logistics role, was extremely involved. He had been in only two, two and a half years when Timor started uh, um, an event and then, of course, went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have um, 41 young men that didn't return from there. Um, well, they did, but um, I had just died over there, and it was very, very sad. And his involvement alone in maybe the first eight to ten repatriations of those boys uh-huh. it's, it's a big thing for veterans to cope with that. Um, and so, as a nurse, what kind of you know, what was the patient experience like when you were working with people who have been through some of these challenges? What what did it mean for you? You, can, you need to remember you can't rely on just your own ability. And this is where I think mental health has a, a huge part to play in that. You think you're experienced when you're at the cold bedside of um, trauma, but mental health is another issue itself. Mm. I, I'm not decrying... Um, one of the terms I've heard recently bandied about is the moral trauma that we're all talking about. We can't say that nurses, midwives at the cold face haven't had similar trauma for, for decades like ad infinitum. But I think it's very, very good that we acknowledge and address that. Mm. And of course, with COVID, that's, COVID's done a lot of things the good but there's a lot of things that's actually highlighted that we have now acknowledged and can move on and address mm. uh, as a nurse i know doing double shifts and I, I hear some of the people are doing three and four double shifts a week that's just i don't know you'll walk on their feet yeah but um just doing a couple of extra shifts to help fully when there's a crisis you know there's an end to that but of course this crisis with covid and the demands has gone on for years and it's actually really been one of the most debilitating, decimating um, instances to affect nursing and midwives. Mm. Um, look, completely agree. And it's interesting, you know, I was interviewed on Sky News recently uh, where we were talking about moral injury and I made the comparison to veterans, you know, uh, people that are working in an environment where um, they're essentially doing things that uh, that go against their values and it causes mm. a level of trauma that we're now referring to and understand mm. as moral injury. Uh, and it's more than burnout. Burnout is, you know, 
I'm a bit tired, I've worked a few too many shifts and I might need a decent holiday. Uh, What we're seeing off the back of COVID is more like the type of trauma that we see uh, in much more significant work kind of environments. Um, And the health minister you were referring to suggested that um, my my tone and the language was escalating because there was an election coming on, Uh, which, you know, of course, I said to the interviewers, I didn't coin the term moral injury. It's not unique for me. Like there's research absolutely that demonstrates what we're talking about. Um, And this is what we're asking nurses and midwives to continue to do. And there's this kind of emphasis on individual uh, resilience as opposed to system reform when we know that people are suffering like this, which is just not appropriate at all. His comment highlighted also that he is demonstrating total uh, indifference to what nurses and midwives have been saying for decades. Like, it's like nurses and midwives are the elephant in the room in the healthcare system. They're happy to acknowledge doctors. They're happy to acknowledge politicians, a lot of other people that are experts in the field and professionals. But for some reason, and I honestly think, and I'll wait for someone to correct me, it's because we have the audacity to be the advocates and vocal stand up for what we know patients and residents should be getting. And I mean, you never silence nurses on that. I know that. But the thing is, they're doing their gambits to uh, undermine the nursing industry profession. They're very under resourced, underpaid, under everything. And I think I'm very proud of the way the association has over the, over the years um, been that advocate and put themselves out there for a lot of criticism from a lot of places that um, we're really not. It's, it is about us and our workplace, but we're actually advocating for better health care for every single person on this, in, the, in the state of New South Wales is what we need to do. And I think that needs to be looked at. And look, I I guess that's a good segue uh, in terms of patient advocacy for all patients across New South Wales, um, because that takes me to the work that you've been involved in around voluntary assisted dying. Uh, And so for listeners um, that might be hearing about this for the first time, we had um, incredible legislation passed here in New South Wales earlier this year that allowed access to voluntary assisted dying for those that wanted it. Uh, there's a number of other states across the country that already have this legislation. So uh, it was long overdue here in New South Wales and um, our union, but also a number of other civil society groups uh, advocated for voluntary assisted dying legislation to be implemented. But you were one of the members um, that were really heavily involved. Um, Can you tell me a bit about um, your work and your advocacy on the issue? My work, apart from my experience as a nurse through the many years, 47 years I was a nurse and midwife, um, I have to say a lot of it comes from personal experience. Mm -hmm. My husband passed away 18 years ago from pancreatic cancer and my mother had in her life towards the end of the last 20 years had three episodes of cancer journeys and she did actually pass away from that. And unfortunately, my son, who'd been in defence for almost 20 years, 
we'd only been out two and a half years and he at 41 attracted cancer and um, lifestyle issues a lot to do with it, apart from very stressful workplace and family dreams. Um, yes, he had an 11-month battle and passed away. And that was actually one of the reasons I had planned to keep working in 2018, but I took leave for the year and was involved with his palliation when he was at home in the early stage. And I can tell you what, you can have all the experiences under the sun, but when it's a personal one, it doesn't it really hit home. Mm. It'd make it difficult for me to go back to work, and that's the reason I didn't. But I have never lost my um, uh, passion because I made a promise to my mother about um, aged care. And, of course, in aged care, my mother had her one week of supposed palliation. Um, it's very hard when you know and you're in the system when someone is to be palliated, what the optimal care should be. And when they don't get that, whether it's your relative or whether anybody else's relative, it's just they get one walk down that road and it has to be done right. Yeah. And it's not sometimes the best of intentions of the staff at the cold case. I've got those back to the providers and the way they manage their um, care resources and what they actually actively do to provide a service. Mm. They don't have enough support from registered nurses in aged care to support a lot of the palliation that should go on, mainly around the timeliness of um, medication. And also, yeah, the number of hands on um staff that should be there to deliver care. And it's just a situation. Yeah, and I guess, you know, a lot of the work that we did was really about pulling apart those kind of um, yeah. comparisons because voluntary assisted dying cannot replace good quality palliation. We need both and we need for people who are going through a palliative experience to have access to all of the care that you've described, but also for the people who are in circumstances that palliation can no longer relieve their symptoms to be able to make a choice about whether or not they want to access voluntary assisted dying as well um, to give them options, you know. And also it comes to the point where there's been for their own reasons and the interference in what the original intent of how the voluntary system design should work. I've been to many meetings in the community, talked to many people. I'm still very involved through the Quality Age Care Action Group with um, um, those that are working in aged care and anywhere. But for those in, at home in the community, that want to have palliation. Mm -hmm. um, the palliative care team are marvellous, honestly. Mm. They really do their best. But we've got one foot in the door and hopefully over time we might be able to improve that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Sometimes we have to start somewhere, even if it's not perfect from the get-go, right? We all know that. Come up this next election, we've got to start somewhere. <laughs> We're starting probably to see a lot of changes with aged care. I, I mean, I know the budget's coming out today, but... A lot of the work that's being done by Wells and Mark Butler and everybody, a lot of people need to just, it's so hard for aged care nurses to be patient, mm. but the cold face, they're just on their knees anymore. So 
Yeah. We, we still try to support them as much as we can. Hopefully we're not going to be talking that much anymore. We're going to be seeing active Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your advocacy. I think today's a really good example of sort of the wonderful um, areas and passions that you've had over a really long career. And thank you for the work that you've done both as a member of the association and as a fantastic nurse and midwife, because I think it's people like you that contribute so much to these professions. So I really appreciate it. I don't think you're never not a nurse. You die with your boots on. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes inherent in your identity, doesn't it? It's quite interesting, I think, yeah. how you graduate and, like, it's part of who you are. It's led me to places I never dreamt I'd go. I've met the most amazing people, not just patients, but the staff I've worked with and learned from. And I have great faith in the younger generation that's coming through. That's why I think we really need support them couldn't have said it better myself thanks deb really appreciate your time today and um hopefully we'll catch up again soon thank you we'll be right back after a quick word about the nurses and midwives association's member advantage scheme did you know that as a member of the new south wales nurses and midwives association you can save thousands of dollars a year through our member advantage program your union membership gives you access to discounts for everything from groceries, white goods from the good guys, holidays, and even a new car. You can access it through your member central portal. And if you're not yet a member, join today by going to nswnma.asn.au to enjoy the benefits straight away. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Deb and look forward to seeing you in a fortnight with more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have an interesting story you'd like to share with us, let us know by emailing us on the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.